Welcome to Your New Mexico Government. We're on episode 10 of the 2022 season. I'm Kaveh Movahead. There are only a few days left in this 30-day legislative session, and it's starting to feel like a lot is getting done. We are close to a final budget, education and voting bills are moving forward, and there has been a lot of movement on anti-crime bills. Crime is up nationwide, and we are certainly feeling it in New Mexico. Today on YNMG, we'll take a look at some of the criminal justice measures considered by the legislature that had broad goals, like easing sentencing on minors and increasing penalties for gun crimes, just to name a couple. Our guest today is Austin Fisher from Source New Mexico. He has been reporting on the legislature for some time, but focused on criminal justice over the last several weeks. Find a link to Austin's work on our webpage under the News tab at KUNM.org and on NewMexicoPBS.org. Your New Mexico Government is a collaboration between KUNM and New Mexico PBS and funded by the Thornburg Foundation. We strive to shine light on government so that you will be informed and ready to participate. If you'd like to get more involved in these last few days of the legislative session, there is still time. You can watch committee and floor hearings online at nmlegis.gov by clicking the webcast button, or you can go to the Capitol building. But be sure to bring a mask and proof of vaccination to get in side. You can also use the Find My Legislator tool under the Legislators tab on nmlegis.gov to get email and phone numbers for your elected officials so you can weigh in on issues they're discussing. Our issue today, though, is criminal justice. Here's that talk I had with Austin Fisher from Source New Mexico. There is a lot to talk about when it comes to anti-crime bills in the legislative session. Let's start with Senate Bill 43, the second chance bill. You've been watching it closely. You've written about it several times now. It had the goal of reducing the sentences for juveniles by requiring a parole hearing after serving 15 years in prison. But it seems like it's become, I don't know, maybe politically untenable in an election year, or maybe there's more to the controversy than that. What's going on with it? Senate Bill 43 wouldn't necessarily give people shorter sentences, but it would prohibit any sort of sentence given to a young person of life without the possibility of parole. It would also decrease the amount of time that a young person would have to be in prison before they would be able to go up to the parole board and get a chance to get released. This is the second year that this bill's come up, and I think that It has drawn a huge amount of pushback from Republicans in the legislature, district attorneys, and as we learned over the weekend and in the past week, also Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. The governor wrote to the Senate in January during the session to approve the bill for consideration, what we call putting it on the call. And at the time, she told advocates that This was an issue that she wanted addressed and that she was committed to signing the bill. But that all changed on February 10th when a Republican lawmaker from Lovington named Randall Pettigrew introduced an amendment to the bill that he said was the result of an agreement between the governor's office, Senate Republicans, and the New Mexico District Attorney Association. So that amendment, despite being seemingly very simple, it only adds and removes a couple of words to the original legislation. But those few words actually would result in the removing of any possibility for meaningful release for young people facing these lengthy adult sentences. The amendment would have effectively exempted 
what are called consecutive sentences, where a judge gives a person multiple sentences and stacks them back to back so that they have to serve the total number of years of all of those sentences added together. That's like in the case of uh, multiple charges for a crime, right? Say there's a robbery, there's the robbery charge, and then a handgun charge, and then a tampering with evidence, or I don't know, something like that? That's correct. If a person in that situation were convicted on all of those charges, the judge would have the ability to sentence that person to serve each sentence for all of those crimes consecutively. Now, judges have the discretion in some cases, actually, to allow a sentence to be served concurrently with other sentences in the case, which means that the person serves those sentences at the same time. This amendment to Senate Bill 43 would have exempted the stacked back-to-back sentences from the parole eligibility timeline. And what that means is it would have gutted the spirit of the bill. And according to one former prosecutor that I spoke with, it would have actually created an incentive for a punitive prosecutor to circumvent what the bill was designed to do, even if it had become law. What we learned from what this Republican said in a committee hearing was that there were negotiations between the governor's office, Senate Republicans, district attorneys, and some victims' advocates. I emphasize some because Victims aren't a monolith, and victims actually feel a variety of ways about this bill. And I think that there's been a lot of reporting and a lot of public statements that have tried to make it seem like victims are only opposed to this bill, but it's actually a much more complicated picture. There have been victims of youth violence that have testified in favor of this bill. They've often brought up arguments that they feel like these young people that committed and were convicted of these crimes are capable of change and are capable of reform, and that the bill gives them a chance to show that. Now, you say this is the second time this legislation or very similar legislation has come up. Where is Senate Bill 43 now? What's it looking like for today and maybe for the future? Should we expect to see it again? Yes, we should. As of last night, Sunday night, February 13th, The sponsors of this bill pulled it from consideration because they say that its opponents were trying to amend it beyond recognition. But the lawmakers who were sponsoring this bill and many other advocates that I've spoken with are expecting to come back even harder in 2023, and they're confident that it will pass because this year they were joined in support of the bill by members of the judiciary here in New Mexico faith communities and leaders, the pediatric medical community, and a number of other professional and nonprofit organizations. And until then, one advocate tells me she hopes that the governor and others will see how much the support has, and that what the advocates say is that it's not right to lock up young people and throw them away for the rest of their life, regardless of the crime that they were convicted of. I think that there will be continued local, statewide, and national organizing around this bill, and I think we will see further public education on on what would this bill do and what does it mean. You also recently covered House Bill 96, which sounds like it would help create a statewide 
violence intervention program, something like what Albuquerque has. We talked to people running the Albuquerque program on Let's Talk New Mexico in the past, and they're having great success, especially in intervening in gang violence before it escalates to full-on gang warfare. They explain that when there's a victim of violence, they interject pretty much as soon as they possibly can, sometimes even in a hospital room, to try to stop the cycle of violence before there's some kind of revenge or retribution. With this bill, though, the police are more involved a little bit than what's going on in Albuquerque. At least that's my understanding. How will it work? Under HB 96, social workers would intervene with victims of violent crime who the police believe are likely to become perpetrators themselves or are past perpetrators. So we're talking about these sort of cycles of violence where, you know, a person is shot or is the victim of a violent crime. In some of the cases that have been handled by the Albuquerque VIP team, these folks have expressed to the team intervening that they do want to seek vengeance. And this kind of program has been done before. But I think that this one involves police to the extent that they're basically waiting in the wings while the VIP team makes contact with these people. What do I mean by that? So the bill specifically uses a type of policing called focused deterrence. And so this is where the police try to stop gun violence through intensive targeted enforcement in tandem with social services and appeals from community members to stop the violence. We've seen these kinds of programs with some success in other places. I think that that should be tempered with sometimes, you know, those reductions in crimes from these kinds of programs don't last very long. And there are some concerns about privacy of these people. But the police are part of this. And that includes this sort of what's called a law enforcement partnership that includes the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Drug Enforcement Administration, whichever local sheriff's office is involved in the program. If the person that's being targeted by the VIP team refuses to cooperate, essentially they're told, well, okay, now you're on the radar of this interagency task force. There is also a substantial public health part of this that's worthy of discussing, right? The VIP team is trying to reach out to these people, and they're trying to get them in touch with services. The needs that have been identified by the Albuquerque program are substance use disorder, detox, housing, and psychological treatment due to past trauma. That's actually why the bill requires at least half of the funding that would go to these programs to go toward public health services. And that would go to, you know, local providers that would be hired by that local program. This bill is connected to House Bill 2, which is the spending package that is currently going through the roundhouse. And House Bill 2 contains $9 million for this program. And local governments would then apply to the State Department of Health to get those grants and to set up their own versions of the VIP program. Let's shift over to House Bill 99. This one creates a felony crime for threatening judges or their families. It passed the House. It's now in the Senate. But in that House vote, there were seven people who voted no. Any idea what the opposition was thinking on this vote? 
There were seven Republicans in the House that voted against this bill. I don't mean to attribute any particular argument to any particular person, but I think the opposition to this bill is that it doesn't go far enough. So that is sort of an argument from the more right-leaning Republicans in the House who say, well, if we're going to offer this protection to judges, why don't we offer it to police officers as well? Now for a big one, House Bill 5. We've been watching this one at KUNM. That legislation was supposed to address the concept of rebuttable presumption, basically forcing defendants to show that they're safe to be released while they wait for trial instead of the onus being on prosecutors to prove that someone is dangerous to the public. But it seems to have died off as legislators are focusing their anti-crime energy on a revision of House Bill 5, which takes on a different issue, which is also one we've been watching closely. That's ankle monitor GPS data. Bernalillo County District Attorney Raul Torres sued the judicial court recently for that data, saying he wants to track people accused of crimes to see if they were in the vicinity of other crimes. And this is raising a lot of privacy concerns for people who've been accused but not convicted of any crime. What's going on with HB5? As of Monday on Valentine's Day, House Bill 5 was set to be heard in the Senate Judiciary Committee. What the sponsor says is that this bill would create some common sense requirements for electronic monitoring of people who have been charged with a felony but who are not incarcerated before their day in court. So these are people that are accused of a crime, they're on pretrial release, but they've been given this condition of release that you must wear this ankle bracelet. It's going to track you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and if you deactivate it, or if you enter a prohibited zone, I'm not sure exactly what those zones will look like, but if you enter one, there would be an immediate notification to police. The legislation would also require this location information to, upon request, be given to police, a prosecutor, a public defender, or the attorney general's office. I think there was some concern from Representative Damon Eli. He asked, why doesn't this bill include defense attorneys in that list of parties who can ask for the information and the sponsor didn't really know how to answer that. So I would imagine there might be some sort of amendment coming that would include defense attorneys to be able to get that location information uh, of their clients. As it stands, at least according to 5th Judicial District Attorney Diana Luce, these existing electronic monitoring programs in New Mexico are, are inconsistent in the way that they are operated. Some are public, some are private, some are run by the court, some are run by the county, some send the information to the judge, others send the information to the district attorney's office. It usually bills like this get a pretty thorough legal review in the Senate Judiciary Committee, but given, I think, all of the attention and energy that's been put into House Bill 5, I would not be surprised if this bill passes. Let's talk a little bit about House Bill 68 that's now passed the House and in the Senate. It's mostly championed by Albuquerque-based legislators, I believe, and would significantly stiffen sentencing for crimes where a gun is involved. You reported that there was evidence that stiff sentences don't really actually deter crimes in cases like these, yet it seems to be advancing. I'm wondering, has tough on crime become a bipartisan rallying cry when normally we think of that as an issue that the right rallies to? The answer is yes. We are in the middle of an election season. There is huge public pressure and I think even media pressure to, quote unquote, do something about crime. And I think that this bill falls squarely within that. 
you can see Democrats and Republicans in favor of this bill, which would create what's called a sentence enhancement, which is sort of an automatic increase in the sentence time in a certain circumstance, like when someone is accused of using a gun to commit a crime. This bill, I think, represents in part the sort of the tough on crime measures that we saw in the 1990s of an attempt to deter future crime through tougher sentences. That's been proven to not work. That's not my opinion. That is shown by research over and over and over for years. And some lawmakers, including Senator Joseph Cervantes, the chair of the Senate Judiciary, actually agrees with that. And I've seen a couple of legislators really start asking for evidence that tougher sentences deter crime. Regardless of the facts, yes, this has become a sort of a bipartisan issue. And I think it dovetails with sort of the structural problems of having a non-citizen legislature where everybody only has 30 days to pass many, many, many numerous bills. And I think there's not just sort of like a political election pressure. There's also like a time pressure. Finally, let's check in on a story you wrote earlier this month that has one of my favorite headlines, high capacity magazine ban jams in committee. Sponsors said the intent was to help prevent mass shootings, but you reported that more than 80 people showed up during the public comment period to express their discomfort with stricter gun laws. The House Consumer and Public Affairs Committee then tabled the measure, but there was some indication it may come back maybe next year. Why did they decide to put a pause on it this time? I don't write all of the headlines, but I did write that one. The Democrats on the Consumer and Public Affairs Committee, you know, said that this wasn't ready. One lawmaker from Albuquerque said, you know, there's no grandfather clause in that bill that would allow existing magazines to be exempted from this enforcement. Another lawmaker from Santa Fe said it needs some more time, should be considered in the 60-day session. I think that they sort of are trying to acknowledge that this is a serious issue, mass shootings and gun violence, but it wasn't ready to just come through in the short session. There was a Republican on the committee who also referred to the proposal multiple times as a pipeline to prison. She alleged that many people would be turned into criminals overnight, I think is how she put it. But the sponsor sort of pushed back on that and said, well, the bill would have given people the time to get rid of these high capacity magazines that are larger than 15 rounds. And so they wouldn't actually have to deal with any sort of police enforcement. Are there other anti-crime bills you're watching right now? There was a very informative discussion in a joint meeting of the Senate Judiciary and Finance Committees on House Bill 231. Uh, This is sort of being referred to as a crime package. It does a huge amount of things. What comes to mind first is sort of addressing an issue that we covered a little bit when I was still working at the Rio Grande Sun in Española, which is there's no actual enforcement or really checking at all if we are actually making sure that New Mexico police are keeping up with their biennial training. The local law enforcement agencies in the state are not required to report to the state whether or not their officers are keeping up with their training every two years. And so we don't actually know which law enforcement officers are certified and which ones aren't. So part of Senate Bill 231 would actually tie those reporting requirements to funding, which I think gives a little bit more teeth 
and creates some financial incentive for these police agencies to actually keep track of their officers' training. Austin Fisher, reporter with Source New Mexico, thank you so much for talking to us today. We'll get a link up to your work for any listeners who want to follow it. And of course, you could also find it at sourcenm.com. Thank you so much, Cave. That was Austin Fisher from Source New Mexico. We have a link to Austin's work on our webpage. That's under the News tab at KUNM.org and on NewMexicoPBS.org. In the short time since we talked to Austin, we can now confirm the Second Chance Bill, Senate Bill 43, has been pulled by its sponsors. Also, Senate Bill 231, which Austin mentioned right at the end but mistakenly called it House Bill 231, it's actually Senate Bill 231, has passed through its first committee. If it can make it to the finish line before time runs out, it would allow for retention bonuses for law officers, and it would create a statewide database for officer misconduct, among other things. Keep an eye on KUNM and NMPBS for coverage of crime bills and other topics coming to a head with only a few days left in the legislative session. It's not too late to subscribe to the YNMG podcast. Find it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and follow hashtag YNMG on Twitter to stay up to date with our work. We'd appreciate it. Thanks again to the Thornburg Foundation for funding this project. If you have any questions for us or our guests, reach out by email at ynmg at kunm.org. That does it for today, but we'll be back soon with more from your New Mexico government. I'm Kaveh Movahead. Thanks for listening.